This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards, and with me tonight are my co-hosts, Emma Westwood. Hello. Hello, Stewie. Hello. Stuart. (laughs) I don't know whether I need to call you by your professional name or not. Oh, it's fine. (laughs) And Cerise Howard, welcome back. Thank you, Dr. Stuart Richards. Thank you very much. Dr. Stuart Richards. Yeah, I worked hard for that PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Cerise Howard. Who's Cerise Howard? Congratulations on a very successful Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia. Thank you kindly. Uh, on tonight's show, we take a look at Gus Van Sant's latest Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far On Foot and Australian war drama Zerga. But first to the great Argentinian auteur Lucretia Martel and her highly anticipated return with Zama. Adapted from the 1956 novel of the same name from Antonio Di Benedetto, this is the first film in nine years from Martel, whose previous work includes The Headless Woman and The Holy Girl. Zama sees Don Diego de Zama on 8th and 18th century Spanish magistrate played by Daniel Jimenez Cacho, stranded on a remote Spanish colony in South America. The longer he waits to be transferred from the Spanish Empire, the further he loses his grip on civilization and his sanity. As he tracks down a famed outlaw, Martel's film becomes increasingly dreamlike and haunting in a critique of both colonial and patriarchal power structures. Here, loneliness is an atrocity. The film's premiere at the Venice Film Festival coincided with the translation of De Benedetto's novel into English. The film is Martel's largest production to date, with Pedro Almodovar and Gael Garcia Bernal receiving producer credits. Emma, what did you think of Zama? Mm, Zama. Well, Lucretia Mattel does not suffer cinematic fools, shall we say. <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> she does not talk down to us. And she really expects us to keep a pace of her her films, despite the fact that they have quite a languid pace to them, I would say. But um, there's a lot going on and there's um, a lot to read between the lines uh, and she gives us the space to do that. It's... I think this film is really established well in that beautiful opening scene where um, Zama uh, is standing on the the water's edge looking out to sea and that kind of sensory, uh, just the, the broad spectrum of sensory experience is just there with him hardly moving and there's the, the sounds of insects and the lapping of the water. She uses sound, both sound and vision and frame and mise-en-scene, frame composition, absolutely stunningly. Uh, this this strangely evoked for me uh, Chiro Guerra's Embrace of the Serpent that came out a couple of years ago. Totally different film, but still uh, at its heart was evoking the same kind of uh, ideology around colonialism in South America, specifically in South America, although in a different region of South America. I think this is Argentina, isn't it, that she is focusing on? I'm not quite sure. I think so. Uh, but it's interesting that the Zam- Zammer as a character um, is 
it's not that you feel sorry for him. I wouldn't say that. Look, I, I wouldn't say that I, I've, yes, I, I uh, felt sorry for him, but I felt frustrated for him. Yeah, that's the word I used as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he is very charismatic figure. He has this most amazing sculptural um, uh, thespian head. What's his name? Daniel Jimenez Cacho, our yeah. actor. Um incredibly amazing, mesmerising cinematic presence and manages to keep us there with a character which is not wholly likeable. And he's in a position of power as the colonialist um, and as the magistrate as well, yet he is totally powerless. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so interesting about this film and his constant attempts to leave that are thwarted. Um, Also, just a little interesting thing that this film film played on that I thought was great was um, it had a Western quality. It had this idea of the outlaw that, um, you know, we don't know who he is. We're always heard of his his dastardly deeds and, you know, his evil ways. Um, and that's a real interesting cinematic reveal in a Western, an American Western sense. Mm. So I found this to be a really... She's an amazing filmmaker. She's just a really intriguing filmmaker. You'll like her or hate her. It's a cliche, but I think that's where um, the best filmmaking lies, basically. Cerise? Yeah, it's a pretty terrific film. Uh, that that whole business around this uh, figure, almost a mythical figure, this, this villain who's seemingly almost granted supernatural powers. We, we don't know whether this person's really alive or dead or has ever actually even been alive, if anyone even knows who they are. His first appearance is in portions, <laughs> to, to put it sort of enigmatically, suitably enigmatically, his first manifestation on screen. Well it's, done. It's, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, he's a, a really enjoyable enigma and there, there's a lot of... a lot drawing from a very particular... Uh, canonical title in the absurdist tradition that this, as, as you were saying, there's so much frustration there for this character. He's forever uh, being thwarted. He just wishes to be reunited with family, uh, even though he seems to have, on the sly, started up another one here with the First Nations people. And that's an interesting area too, that um, his his acknowledgement of that is a little token, you could say. It doesn't seem exactly very heartfelt, um, but some sense of responsibility there. He's a really, really interesting character. I, I like that this film is languid, not just for the dreaminess that it really embraces at about the three-quarter mark where there's a sudden, not that sudden, but it does change gears. Even though there's still a real languor to it, it uh, the, the, the editing does speed up a little, but it's more that the, the edits are from quite, a, uh, the transitions are quite abrupt in those edits from one scene to another or time of day to another. Just stuff starts happening quite uh, enigmatically. Uh, things are already curious, but things get really quite surreal towards the end there. And it's an entirely satisfying film to let wash over you. You've got to give it a bit of energy, I think, at the outset. It's a sort of a style of film that I have a lot of time for. So long as I know that I need to make time for it too, I think that's what people need to know. They need to bring a bit of energy to it and then the film will return that investment in spades. Yeah, you really have to will yourself into this film, I think. When there, there's, a, there's a really sharp shift, like an elliptical shift that happens, I'd say maybe two-thirds of the way into the film. Oh, I said three-quarters. Oh, oh. maths. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> 
yeah. Uh, so there's a real kind of shift and I think you have to be into a certain headspace when that shift happens. I don't think you can jump straight into that shift. You do need to let that film sort of slowly sit with you uh, until when these sort of moments later on, which were stunning. Uh, when this film started, I was thinking I was writing some notes and I was like, oh, this is slow. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't sure if I was sort of in the right mood for it. But then when that shift happens, I was like, holy crap, this is great. And I didn't want it to end. I wanted to keep on going and keep on going. Some of those shots, those nighttime shots towards the end, I won't say what happens, uh, are incredible. The use of colour in this film uh, is really smart. Uh, I really love that opening shot and those opening scenes of Zama because his dress and his... Um, um, the way he stands, he just completely does not belong in that landscape. He stands out. But as this film goes on and as his character degrades and becomes... He loses his sense of who he is. He slowly sort of becomes into the land where that sort of transition, that uh, distinction between him and the world around him mm. is lost. Um, yeah. I like the way that it dismantles authority in the way that they, they all have this sort of Baroque hairstyles and the wigs, you know, that slowly sort of slip off or, you know, yeah. half-masked. <laughs> it's very Marie Antoinette. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, which is it, it clashes with their environment and you can see how this idea that, um, and this is the way this what it plays out with the embrace of the serpent as well, the kind of arrogance of the colonialists thinking that they will have majesty over this land and how the land, and even more than the people, it's just the energy, everything there just um, dismantles them totally. Mm. It was like the the local people um, were tolerating and kind of waiting. There was just this sense of them kind of waiting for something, you know, to happen. And even at this... Um, at the start where we have Zama looking out overseas and he's obviously of um, a more aristocratic leaning and that he then um, hides in the dunes and looks at the women bathing in the mud and then that even one of the local women calls him a pervert and a sort of, or she calls him a voyeur, but I think essentially it's a pervert, uh, that, you know, kind of pulls him down to, um, you know, a different level. Like he's never allowed to have the aristocracy that he would possibly be afforded elsewhere. And he is also someone who pines for this uh, this Spanish superiority, yet he hasn't been born in Spain. He's mm. been born in the Americas. So he's totally lost and kind of grasping at something that's, you know, not not something that is even his reality. It's it's very interesting. The 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 druggish there's this druggish hallucinatory quality that comes about. Another thing that kind of plays into Embrace of the Serpent, which is more about or in this film anyway, seems to be more about what the surrounds do. Um, the surrounds do to him, which is really quite incredible. It's sort of what I would see as a, the typical, we hear people say someone goes tropo. This is an example <laughs> of that. Someone literally going tropo. And it does feel hot, the film. It feels sticky. You know, yeah, we hear the insects. Yeah, she yeah. communicates that so beautifully. She just has a sensory, the, the music even, which was really strange. It had these elements of Hawaiian, 
Hawaiian love songs or something about it that almost gave it a comical edge. And that's another thing. She wasn't scared of putting comedy into this movie, mm. which is a movie that I think a lot of other um, filmmakers maybe would have strayed away from putting comedy into it. Cyrus. There's such a, a tradition of magic realism in South America, uh, Central South America, and I, I, I was sensing at some point this film was going to engage with that tradition and perhaps to some extent it does without going into any detail. But there, there is that a certain atmosphere that is there from the outset that suggests that something sort of magical and yet mundane could happen at any time. <laughs> it really has that, that peculiar enigmatic quality and I think that languor is central to it. You can't rush a film to arrive at that sort of quality. Yeah. So it, it has to have a nice dreamy pace such that you can start by degrees to introduce odd elements that just become part of the fabric of a landscape and of an environment. And it feels lived in then, it feels established and somehow convincing, even though by degrees it's going to become slightly more outlandish. <laughs> and it's very satisfying. But there's a slow build-up. Yes, that and that's critical. Fever, dream, yes. quality. My favourite scene is when there's the llama just wandering <laughs> yeah, around yeah. the room. Or is it an alpaca? I'm oh, maybe it's an alpaca. Clear. I don't know the difference. Yeah. Uh, but one's larger, one smaller, basically. <laughs> one mm. of those. Uh, when there's like just wandering around the room and they're having this really serious conversation and I was like, when are they going to acknowledge the alpaca in the room? The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. elephant? No, yeah. the alpaca in the room. Rem that reminded me of a... Uh, I, mean, I love Guy Madden's film very much and one of I've the films... I've heard about that, that Cerise. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a rumour about you that one, you really like Guy Madden. Quite fond. <laughs> one of the films of his that even those who are as fond of them as I am sometimes struggle with is Twilight of the Ice Nymphs and that's a film which has at regular intervals ostrich heads suddenly just penetrating the frame <laughs> and, and you know, I find that hilarious and I was reminded of that, um, of Twilight, of the Ice Nymphs and watching this very un-icy and not terribly nymphy film uh, not even very twilight either for that. In my, occasionally a little bit twilight. In my notes, I just had written creepy llama question creepy. mark. <laughs> <laughs> but also uh, on a very serious note with her framing, one thing I noticed is that at the start there's a really interesting uh, way she frames uh, sort of the colonialists uh, and the people that sort of are very kind of disempowered in that space, which I think is really, really interesting. And that framing shifts, uh, which I think is fantastic. Mm -mm. Well, those those pe the othered people there are often sometimes. Uh, there's even this suggestion of this uh, boy, uh, again, almost like an apparition. People keep seeing a boy, and then we we sort of see a boy at some point too. But mm. and then we there's a particular boy we get to kind of meet who has a connection with Don uh, Don Diego yeah. de Zama. Um, but there, there, there's yeah throughout that little suggestion too, just through hints and little. Little gentle elbows to the rib cage, <laughs> a little a nudge and a wink. That that there is perhaps something a little supernatural in the mix. That this this land in which this man is so out of his depth, really so out of his element, and increasingly out of his depth as he discovers he has no power to influence change to his benefit. Uh, I, I find that. Um, uh, yeah. The intrigue that develops in this film, much of it is just through suggestion. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that that element of um, supernaturalness does come out. I, I've only seen one other Lucretia Martel film, which is The Headless Woman, and I, and that came out in that film as well. Um, she has only made four films, 
which are all showing as part of this ACME they retrospective. Are. That's correct. Uh, the headless woman has um, a very similar. I think even the framing is probably more pronounced in that. Yeah, there's that pivotal yeah. scene in the car at the start of the headless woman, which is so well shot. Yeah, and sets off the mood of the entire film. And literally, the titles come up, and she is the 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 frame cuts her head off. Mm. <laughs> so she yeah. is the headless literally. woman for it. <laughs> Um, so this is like this is a really good chance for people to see yeah. these four films and see a complete oeuvre so far. Hopefully she will make so many more. Oh, except unfortunately, I have to say the Holy Girl. It's not. It's last night tonight. Yes, so the Holy yeah. Girl uh, finishes its season at Acme tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet La Cienega, which is her first film, The Swamp, yep. can be seen and uh, headless woman. And Headless Woman and Zama. Yes. Mm. So, yes. So, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image is presenting an exclusive season of Zama alongside Martel's other films, uh, The Holy Girl, which sadly finishes tonight, La Cienaga and The Headless Woman. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now to another film that is also a literary adaptation, but of a slightly different kind with Gus Van Sant's Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Before he was a renowned cartoonist known for his provocative cartoons that dealt with taboo subject matter, John Callahan's life was ruled by hedonism and alcohol. His life was irrevocably changed by road accident at the age of 21, which left him as a quadriplegic. Reminiscent of his sentimental goodwill hunting, Van Sant has adapted Callahan's memoir of the same name. Yaquin Phoenix portrays Callahan as the cartoon um, as the cartoonist battles alcoholism after his accident and builds his career as a cartoonist. His life is a mess until he's forced to do AA, where he meets Donnie, played by the brilliant Jonah Hill. The group leader who becomes a catalyst for a change in Callahan's outlook on life. The film features an impressive all-star cast featuring Jack Black, Rooney Mara, Udo Kier, Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Beth Ditto, who we just heard from, and Carrie Brownstein. Cerise, what did what are your thoughts on Don't Worry He Won't Get Far on Foot? It's an amazing cast. And uh, yeah, so much indie rock royalty, plus Udo Kier playing a homophobe, which is just yeah. hilarious. <laughs> Uh, I think I was the only one chuckling in the crowd when he uh, <laughs> casually was homophobic, at least his character was, perhaps because no one else knew who, who on earth this strangely accented man actually is, but um, <laughs> it was very satisfying. This is a, a really curious film from a, a, a long-time quite curious filmmaker. Van Zandt's career has had peaks and troughs and they seem to almost alternate. <laughs> He's had a, a couple of terrible uh, duds in recent times but it wasn't so long ago that milk won oscars and Mm. um yeah and goodwill hunting yeah well Well, that was a while ago that was quite a while ago it was 20 years ago but there's an interesting link with that and this film which is that i understand robin williams originally was keen to be in this film and maybe it would have been quite a different film had robin williams Mm. played this character i certainly wonder if it would have come differently at the question of good taste which is something i think is central to what this film is all about and that it really struggles with, actually. I I found this film a little frustrating because I understand that this cartoonist was actually quite a celebrity eventually. He's not someone whose work I've ever become familiar with. But this film really, for me, struggles to indicate just how how controversial his 
his work was and would be now because the it seems to have a quite uh, hedge city fence sitting hedge betting um, <laughs> uh, something on the border anyway yeah, <laughs> a, attitude towards the work that we see of his which in turn is sometimes animated to enliven it and make it a bit more cinematic I suppose and to show it as a work in progress occasionally in one, one or two ways that's quite elegantly done but I, I I find that this film doesn't know quite how to come at the outrage that his work might once have provoked whether to to some degree scorn it because it's well outrageous uh, whereas in the time its outrageousness was clearly celebrated to some extent and this film really doesn't know quite how to come at that I felt mm. that I felt that Van Sant didn't really know quite what attitude he had towards his actual protagonist, <laughs> which made for a slightly indifferent experience for me as a viewer of this film. And the other thing that's a little difficult to come at too, which is inevitably going to be controversial, is whether uh, and some someone who actually gets around in a wheelchair ought to have been cast in this film or whether we needed another actor playing a disabled character. Mm. Uh, I understand that you know the film wants to show footage of him when he is able to be bipedally mobile um, but uh, is, yeah, it, it's always going to be a little awkward because an actor this is always one of the showiest roles an actor can take on the role that is of a huge bodily transformation where they have to convince you that they are now suddenly uh, supremely um, uh, modified in their ability to because mm, he, he wasn't he, mm. while he wasn't quadriplegic he was kind of spasticated in his arms yeah. like he couldn't hold the pen properly so the whole yeah. idea was that interesting manner he had to create his artwork as well his cartoons yeah mm. and and that's actually transmitted in a nice way in the very opening I, I recall just a sense that there are some cartoons being scrawled on screen and you get a sense that there's some awkward movement necessary to produce them in the way that they're being drawn without actually seeing the body drawing them it's uh, um, mm. I remember sort of thinking that's, that's a bit odd um, <laughs> but it all made sense in due course but it's yeah it's always it's always going to be a little awkward because I think Phoenix is extraordinary in this role but whether he should be garlanded for playing a role that maybe could have been given as a rare opportunity to somebody who's not going to get cast in many other roles, yeah, you know, it's, it's always going to be problematic here on mm. end. Yeah, I think this probably is more of um, the relationship between Gus Van Sant and Joaquin Phoenix, why he got cast in this role, because there's a massive lineage here. Um, right back, you know, looking, I think To Die For was probably the first film that he was in with him, and we were just talking about that as we had our sponsor announcements about, you know, how young um, Joaquin Phoenix was at that time. And was River Phoenix in Drugstore Cowboy? In my own private Idaho. My own private Idaho. Yes, yeah. Oh. So he has this, I think this is just more their relationship DNA that's playing out, uh, and which is really interesting to see and interesting to see on screen. And not only that, but Gus Van Sant's relationship with all these these musicians and other creative people who aren't necessarily on screen creative people because he has done a lot of music documentaries and so forth which he is really showing his connections here and working his connections but as Cerise was saying about this idea of, you know, hedging his bets, I think he really does. I think that there's a sense that probably the book and I haven't read the book but that there may have been a greater focus on his artwork and his um, career 
over three decades indeed of um, it, as a cartoonist in a daily newspaper in Portland, Oregon, because um, this film, the focus seemed to me to be on the ANA, a, ANA, do you like that? <laughs> AA meetings. It was yeah. very much about the alcoholism and the alcoholics experience and also the other group. That's why it was so interesting that really Kim Gordon, who plays, which I love, she just played the kind of stereotypical Valium hopped up housewife corky. in it. Corky. 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 And um, Beth Ditto and Udo Kier were these seminals in this little this little group of people and and I think that that really made that group pop as did Joni Hill and you mentioned him being brilliant in your intro which is to to be totally honest when he first came on screen I didn't recognize him no, nor did I no yeah. and it wasn't because of physical appearance it was because of his performance I didn't mm. recognize him and the physical appearance I had no idea who that was until the credits <laughs> rolled <laughs> Like, it looks vaguely so familiar. Roll. Yeah, really. I'd totally wow. forgotten he was cast in it. I'd seen the opening credits and just let it go <laughs> one ear out the other. And, um, oh, how about that? Yeah. He's I, extraordinary. He is extraordinary. <laughs> I, the, I mean, there is something about that, though, that at first I really loved because he is extraordinary. And this perhaps is a career best performance in him. Uh, Jack Black has a scene towards the end of the film, which is incredible. I agree. I, that really blew my mind, his scene it's, with him. Yeah. I mean, that. I, I mean, because I saw this at MIFF and that was the moment I actually started crying during, watch, during the film. And that was also a moment when I was like, no, Jack Black is a very good actor and mm, he's very mm. good at what he does. Mm. But then I started thinking that there are a lot of great female characters in this film. There's Corky, there's Beth Ditto, there's Rooney Mara as the supposedly Swedish girlfriend, and then there's Carrie Brownstein as his case manager, and none of them really have any depth to end the narrative whatsoever. No. I they have no moments. Where all of the it's... male characters have moments in the film, and that was something that just doesn't sit right with me, where Rooney Mara, I mean, she's just this amalgam... I mean, in interviews, Gus Van Sant says that she is just an amalgamation of various girlfriends he's had, which leaves her as kind of being no one. As not even John Callahan's girlfriends, as in Gus Van Sant's girlfriends. I mean, no, no, I mean, in terms of Callahan's... Oh, sorry, he's amalgam... Well, the interesting thing is... um, I found her character to be almost um, spiritual, more that she wasn't... I think that she could have... She didn't seem to be physically present in the film. Like even her introduction when he was strapped to the gurney upside down, um, really extreme close-up, I'm waiting for his nose not to drop on me the whole time while watching it. It was quite confronting, actually. Yes, (laughs) It was very close. There's a lot of really, really close, uncomfortable scenes here. And she kind of slides in underneath him and um, looks up at him and she's all angelic. And then she just flits away and then she flits back in again as the the flight attendant. She's the Scandinavian air flight oh, attendant. Maybe, that's a, maybe I was watching the entire film wrong. She felt like, to me, she didn't actually feel like a true physical presence and I didn't even feel her interaction with the other characters of the film. Wow. This is that's like Sixth Sense level of conspiracy theory. Wow. <laughs> 
I don't know whether that's true, but <laughs> it felt like that. Cerise. There was some very peculiar advice dispensed by a, a medical professional in this film, basically suggesting that for him to get uh, reacquainted with his sexual self, oh, he yes. might like to actually harass a nurse. That was, yeah, that was yes. really interesting. Was, yeah. I mean, for all of the, the outrage that's supposed to have been contained in his cartooning, some of the rest of this film was <laughs> casually outrageous, which I think had had the cartooning we saw in it and the attitude towards it been as outrageous, it would have been of a piece in the whole film. You could have taken as of its time and <laughs> here it is and take it, you know, take, take to it what bring to it what you will and interpret it. But I think the film was trying to guide us too much to feel certain ways about it, but it mixed its messages. That was a very peculiar moment. <laughs> then there was a really, really rubbish moment where several men sit around in a bar and try to determine what is or isn't funny about one particular cartoon, which had already offended um, a waitress. The, yes, yeah. the barmaid. The yeah. bar, yeah. yeah. And so they basically took a joke, such as it was, and deconstructed it, which was always going to rid any humour that may have ever been there, totally from that from that gag, and then tried to just turn it around and go, oh, but that's why it's funny. And it had long ceased to be even remotely funny at that point. I think really that scene should never have been shot, let alone included in the final film. I it's, don't it's know what they travesty. were really... Were they trying to explain his humour in that by dissecting the joke. I don't know why it was placed in there. It was a very unusual film. Was Was it trying to say women don't understand this, men do? I'm not sure. I really don't know. It was trying to redeem it but scorn it at the same time. It was really uh, just uh, wishy-washy. Very odd. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, so there almost seems to be like two films happening here. One is about his uh, his career, uh, but then there's also his uh, battle with alcoholism. And I think the cartoon side, I think, is quite underdone, as you mentioned, Cerise. But then also, but the alcohol sort of narrative, I think, is incredible. It really gets at sort of the grotesque... Um, associations that sort of an alcohol and that alcoholic sort of goes through uh, in terms of their body and sort of their need and and Jaquin Phoenix's performance in this regards I think is very incredible. Mm, mm, yeah, I think he's amazing. I think he definitely has a rapport with Gus Van Sant that comes out. I mean, it's interesting because there are parallels to be drawn to Goodwill Hunting, definitely, but there couldn't be more different, really. Uh, Goodwill Hunting definitely has a, a classic narrative structure to it. Um, this film, while it is the, that classic structure, is within a lot of uh, the visual assault. It's just that the idea of the storytelling comes in from many different angles. Um, you've got that through road of a story that's being told at different time frames and diff- through different situations and it's really quite an, an onslaught when i when it started i thought oh this could be maybe one of my favorite films of this year but it, it didn't end up being that for me mm. uh, i did enjoy it as well i think it's in- Important to point out that it had it really played, even though I think it was meant to be set in the eighties, it played very much on a seventies aesthetic. Totally. Yeah. Mm. Including some um, curious wipes. Those uh, wipes were amazing. Yeah, they were interesting. They were seventies via twenty eighteen somehow. Yeah. These strange <laughs> screen wipes uh, laterally at one point and then vertically yeah. another. Yeah. Really Curious. And both around his alcohol experience as well, not mm. around the cartooning. Mm. 
I mean, while we're on that, um, the, the the zooms in the film really yep. annoyed me. Did they? Oh, that really annoyed me. In the um, there's because there's a lot of awkward zooms during the the, the meetings that they have, where there's yeah. a rawness or a fluidity to the way the camera moves and is used. And they do feel a little contrived to me. It mm. feels like he th- he went, oh, hang on. I meant to be putting this 70s thing in here as well. Oh, I better pop, pop that in there now because yeah. there is a lot going on. Yeah. There is a real, it's a rollicking film. It's Multiple not a, timelines. Yeah. Um, Lots so to much handle. Gone. Much repetition across those timelines yeah. is how the film starts off. But yeah, you know, it, it, there's some avant gardeism, but also there's some real mainstreamism and some real wishy washyism. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. So don't worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot is in limited release now. Three, triple. <sighs> Finally tonight, we are looking at Australian war drama Jerga. Australian writer-director Benjamin Gilmore, who previously directed Son of a Lion, was originally planning to shoot this film in Pakistan until the Pakistan Secret Service blocked production after reading the script, leading to the financier to withdraw support. Gilmore relocated the shoot to Afghanistan with a small crew and a very flexible shooting schedule. Following the raid on a small village, which resulted in the death of an unarmed man, former Australian soldier Mike, played by Home and Away's Sam Smith, has returned to Afghanistan to locate the victim's family. The journey to redemption through Taliban and ISIS-controlled territory is dangerous, which mirrors the film's production conditions. So, Emma, what was your what were your thoughts? I think it just—it's just funny to hear starring home and away is Sam Smith because it really does sort of. That's only how I know him through. Undercut the gravity of this film. Let's just say, I don't think they were pitching for home and away. Uh, yeah, this was intriguing. This isn't a guns blazing war film, let's say. Although it does open with, I believe, is file footage through night vision. Um, of warfare just to establish where our protagonist has come from. And then we're in the streets of Kabul and he wants to go to Kandahar, I believe, which is our, our character who has money strapped to him uh, and is on some sort of uh, death mission, it would appear, because no one in Kabul wants to go to <laughs> Kandahar. Yeah. No dangerous. But he manages to dupe uh, um, a, a chap who takes him part of the way and then he tries to coax him uh, to take him, well, the, the the driver thinks he's going elsewhere or in the same region and then um, the, the character decides to, the Australian uh, soldier decides to coax him to try and go to Kandahar. Um, what I think was most amazing for me in watching this film is that um, experience of watching Afghanistan now, really. Mm. Um, I know there was a lot of meaning behind this and what it was trying to impart in terms of war and humanity and I feel that Afghanistan might be becoming the new Vietnam for us in Australia and uh, it was really talking about Afghanistan and that conflict in that manner. Uh, The the landscapes, the city landscapes, I think that the hotel room that's in the hotel that they used 
was um, not a dress set and it was a very unique, interesting hotel and the walls and everything that were in there. And then to arrive at this incredibly pristine still lake uh, in the middle of the desert with these amazing rock forms around it. And not surprisingly, Benjamin Gilmore, you know, he he let the camera stay with that for quite a long time because that was staggering those scenes and also in terms of the rapport building of him with this man and playing the guitar and sharing different um, musical traditions to, you know, develop some rapport and then coax him into taking him on a death journey into Kandahar. Um, but I did like the way that it did, it it dangled a bit of a unknown carrot over the film because you weren't sure whether, what was he chasing? Why was he going to Kandahar? It did, it did take until probably halfway through the film until you get some clarity on that. And similarly, it, it took until halfway through the film to get some clarity in the language. I thought it was really interesting how it had lack of subtitling um, which was really, I think, to buy into his experience. So we didn't know what the Afghani people were saying unless we could speak the language. Uh, I thought he was going to continue that the whole way through. He didn't. I don't know whether I would have liked to have seen him continue that all the way through. I can see why it might have been a difficult, but, um, yeah, it was an interesting technique. There were many interesting things about this film. It didn't blow me away, but I, I liked what it was doing. And there's a real sense throughout of just being astounded that it even exists. It's one of those films where the sense of place is so strong because it's very clearly where it purports to be. And then you have to wrap your head around the fact that this film uh, was actually shot in this territory under, no doubt, very dangerous circumstances. And it reminds me of a, a number of Middle Eastern films made by Middle Eastern filmmakers who've used their war-torn lands as filming locations to construct narratives around the, their lived reality. So an extraordinary film that came to mind is by Barman Gabadi from about 2004 called Turtles Can Fly, where children are clearing landmines from an area around the uh, Iraqi-Turkish border, uh, an area that actually was riddled with landmines. And I, could, I found that almost unwatchable, but so strong was its sense of place and threat. Uh, similarly... Some years back, a film, Son of Babylon, an Iraqi uh, grandmother and son, uh, Kurdish, I think they were, a road movie through a, a war-torn, extremely war-torn, dangerous area. And um, you know, I find those films really powerful because I believe in, in the actuality of, you know, this is, it, it's sort of taken from what was set up by the Italians with neorealism post-World War II and taking it to this area that still feels very much alive in its danger to inhabitants and especially to visitors, uh, especially if those visitors are of the clans who have, well, invaded those lands and, and, uh, or bombed them or these days used drones as, as comes up very explicitly in this film. And this really goes to a quite powerful lengths to just really put a human face to what can become all too easily abstract, which is the idea that the country that we are citizens of, or at least residents of, is killing people to, to, who to us are faceless, but to the people who are on the ground in those communities are very real, and they're families. And um, I think it really pays to have that rubbed in our faces once in a while, because <laughs> I think we frankly deserve it. And it's powerful. Mm. Yeah, it is quite powerful. And I think the, the lack of subtitles for most of the film is 
uh, yeah, a really smart touch, mm. I think. Uh, the exposition or the lack of exposition in the film, I think, is also very well done. Uh, sort of when we see the money strapped to his body uh, and that very kind of, um, I guess, sort of slow uh, relationship he builds with the cab driver, mm-hmm. I think, is quite smart. And sort of knowing sort of why he's there and what he wants to do when he gets to that village and finds a family, uh, I think is a really interesting uh, development of the narrative. I found him as a performer, though, a struggle to identify with. Mm. Just, uh, I mean, just, I mean, I mean, in these two other films, in Zama and Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, both of those films have lead actors that really, uh, I guess, sort of tell the story through their face, mm-hmm. I find, where Sam Smith, I just didn't... He was, He's an odd presence, I'll agree. I, I, yeah. I struggled with him as well. He's just, I mean... You're a fan of his Home and Away career, Well, but you? of course. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up on Home and Away. Uh, yeah, I wasn't a neighbour's kid. I uh, didn't. <laughs> no, nor me. <laughs> no, but me, I, I, I just didn't get that from him, uh, and which mm. I think made me struggle sort of for maybe towards the end of the film when the, the stakes are so high and you do feel the height of those stakes, but it just didn't sort of get me there. And I think that's what the limitation was, just yeah. sort of that the, the, I didn't get the fear from him. What did you think, both of you, Cerise and Stewie, uh, about that? Because um, there, there is a point in the film where he's um, captive, um, being held captive by a group of people. Um, and then I felt that that relationship seemed to flip-flop very quickly. It went from hostility to hospitality <laughs> rather rather fast for me. Yeah. I didn't kind of, whereas there, that, there was a beautiful rapport building with his driver um, with that beautiful setting. Maybe that's why he spent more time on that. But I didn't, I don't know whether I missed something, but I didn't quite... Um, get why there was a change in that relationship, mm. if yeah, you that, know what that, I mean. That could have taken longer. It could have taken yeah. longer to tease that out and make it seem a bit more organic. Realistic. And, <laughs> and let's say realistic. Yeah. But also I don't I don't know that our Sam is that uh, multidimensional uh, performer, really. I don't know. This film doesn't show it anyway. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Because there's so much else going on for this film that you really do feel. You do feel uh, that sense of place in yeah. the film. And especially that little wet part of the place. You don't expect the, that a Afghanistan no. to have a, a stunning lake and it it's is amazing. spectacular. It's seriously yeah. gobsmackingly gorgeous yeah. to look at this. That, that scene it. when they're yeah. on the lake is incredible. Yeah. 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 Um, but also there's that moment towards the end when a decision gets made and I won't say what it is, obviously. Uh, that also feels quite quick mm. where there are a few kind of major moments that could have just been sort of nourished a bit, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We could have been put through the ringer a little bit more as well, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a little. Give us more. <laughs> Still, it's incredible it even exists, frankly, too. I, I know. Think, it yeah. is amazing. Amazing that this film could be made and it doesn't seem like they're stealthily hiding behind cars or anything to take sh- the shots. No. You know what I mean? You know? Yeah. And those, and the sort of the, the, the use of rooms uh, throughout uh, the start of the film. So there's the shop where he gets the guitar, there's the hotel, they feel real. Mm. Oh, yes, absolutely. I feel yeah. that, that they weren't dress locations. They no. were actual locations. Yeah. Uh, do you think, though, it's a weakness that uh, we need that explanation of the film to really get the gravity? Mm. Mm, no. Yes. 
maybe, as in the, the filming in Afghanistan. Yeah. I think that somehow comes out. I think that's uh, assumed. I okay. assumed it, knowing okay. that it was shot in, uh, knowing it was shot in Af- Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. You need to yeah. believe in it, mm. and and it's real, so it's easy to believe in it. Yeah. It works. Mm. Yeah, without that, if if you thought that was actually a back lot in Sydney, it wouldn't work. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jurga uh, is in limited release now. Tonight, we also covered the uh, Acme exclusive Zama, and don't worry, he won't get far on foot, which is in limited release now. You have been listening to Emma Westwood and Cerise Howard. I've been Stuart Richards. Thank you to Faith Everard, who edits the podcast version of this show, and to Carl Chapman on the decks tonight. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.